You are listening to 90.1 FM, KKFI, Kansas City Community Radio. Stay tuned for the Heartland Labor Forum, radio that talks back to the boss. a weekly show of news, information, and commentary by and for the working people of Kansas City. This show is produced by a team of volunteers from a broad range of workplaces and unions. The views expressed on the Heartland Labor Forum are ours and not necessarily those of KKFI or any unions involved. Tonight's show is being underwritten by IBW Local 1464 and AFGE Local 1336. IBEW, that's the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, Local 1464, is a labor union that represents nearly 800 workers in Missouri and Kansas, primarily utility workers and in manufacturing. We strive to improve the lives of working people. When your power goes out, our members turn it back on. And... AFGE, that's American Federation of Government Employees, Local 1336, represents employees across the state of Kansas and in Omaha, Nebraska, Des Moines, Iowa, and Dallas, Texas. Unions ensure a fair and equitable work environment. We are the voice of those who have none, strength and numbers. And the Heartland Labor Forum and KKFI thank our underwriters for their support. On tonight's show, we all remember Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. for his legacy in the civil rights movement. Maybe you know <clears throat> he was shot while supporting a strike of garbage collectors in Memphis. But we bet you don't know about the broad role many labor unions played in supporting civil rights or the individual union heroes who stood up for civil rights. Tonight on the show, we'll talk to Patricia Jones-Macklin and Michael Bell about their memories of the movement and the leaders who dedicated themselves to both the labor and civil rights movements. In the news, <coughs> UAW Southern Strategy takes off <coughs> and KCMO City Council to implement the Pregnant Worker Fairness Act. Our feature at the end of the show is Remember Our Struggle with Ariana. And now for the news. Taxes are much in the news right now. The House just passed a bill expending, extending the child tax credit, which is predicted will pull an estimated 400,000 children above the poverty line. 
but there were, of course, trade-offs. In today's political standoff, you can't cut taxes on the poor without giving the rich a break. According to the Tax Policy Center, the top 1% of income earners, those making above $980,000, will see an after-tax income boost of 0.5%, or $9,500 in their 2023 taxes. The bill now heads to the Senate. Meanwhile, corporate tax dodging has reached epic proportions. Remember how GM said it couldn't afford the workers' demands during the strike, but eventually gave in? Well, General Motors is reporting nearly $6 billion in domestic profits in 2023. The tax law for corporations says they must pay 21%. What did they pay? 4% while the average household pays 13.6%. Of course, GM needs the money to pay its top execs execs and stockholders, right? Speaking of auto, this week the United Auto Workers Union announced it has gotten signed cards from over half of the workers at the Chattanooga, Tennessee Volkswagen plant. The cards, they say, want to be represented by the UAW. Listeners may recall the UAW lost a union representation election there a few years ago, after the governor of Tennessee became a union buster. Last fall, after the auto strike, UAW President Sean Fain predicted that the Southern auto plants would soon go union. And now, only some two months after starting, over 50% of the VW workers have agreed. According to John Nichols, the Volkswagen plant in Tennessee is one of the largest non-union auto plants in the southeastern United States. He says a victory there could produce a major breakthrough in the UAW effort to organize workers in parts of the country that have been dominated by anti-union forces for generations. The Tennessee workers are in contact with and getting attaboys from some of the 4,000 workers at each of the plants south of Chattanooga in Alabama where Mercedes and Hyundai assemble cars. A few months ago, the Heartland Labor Forum covered the new Pregnant Worker Fairness Act which became law last June. It provides for reasonable accommodations or temporary change of job at work that are medically necessary during or after pregnancy or while breastfeeding. Last Thursday, the Kansas City Council unanimously passed Ordinance 240-082, amending Chapter 38 of the Municipal Code. This change implements the Pregnant Worker Fairness Act, at the local level by educating workers and supervisors about it and enforcing its provisions. Federal and state laws all need local mechanisms to carry out the intent of the federal law. Mayor Pro Tem Rihanna Parks Shaw led the effort through the Kansas City Council. Carol Collies of the American Association of University Women and Alex Kitchen, chair of the Kansas City Gender Equity Task Force and KC Human Rights Commission testified. On Monday, ex-Under and President Juan Orlando Hernandez, also known by his initials J-O-H, pronounced in Spanish as Ho, will go on trial in New York City on narcotics trafficking and weapons charges. He was charged along with his cousin, Mauricio Hernandez Pineda, who is a former police officer and the former head of the Honduran police, Juan Carlos the Tiger Bonilla. Both pled guilty in the last week uh, to some counts and were removed as co-defendants with Ho. It's unclear whether they will testify against him. 
Hernandez ruled Honduras from 2013 to 2022 and was also one of the leaders of the 2009 coup, which was backed by the United States. The governments which followed had full backing from Presidents Obama, Trump, and Biden, while Honduras became the primary transit point for cocaine shipments from Colombia while murderous gangs linked with the police terrorized citizens, while the army and police were trained by the United States, and Ho received millions in aid for his corrupt government. Honduras became a narco state, causing tens of thousands to flee north for sanctuary in the United States. A few days after Ho stepped down as president, the United States, which no longer needed him to facilitate both the militarization of Central America or the protection of exploitative U.S. corporate investors, requested his extradition on drug trafficking charges. The new president of Honduras, Xiomara Castro, gladly obliged. Ho goes on trial on Monday, and the Honduras Solidarity Network, made up of North American human rights organizations, is waging a campaign to hold the U.S. accountable for facilitating the carnage through the, by aiding and abetting a narco-dictatorship. They are asking people to contact their members of Congress and demand accountability and also compensation for the many victims of this disaster. And finally, Labor Notes reports that wellness programs at work have no measurable effect on mental health interventions, according to a new study. British researchers analyzed the responses of over 46,000 workers at companies that offered such programs as mindfulness seminars, massage classes, and sleep app subscriptions. But don't despair, there's a proven remedy for many workplace maladies, from abusive supervisors to paltry wages to insufficient vacation days and inadequate health care. The remedy is a union. The news from our side was read tonight by Judy Morgan, Tom Gebkin, Michael Savoir, Judy Anso, and I'm Stephen Hill. I'm Judy Morgan, President Emerita of the American Federation of Teachers, Local 691, and former Missouri State Representative for the 24th District. I'm co-hosting with my good friend Tom Gepkin, President of the Communication Workers of America, Local 6360 in Kansas City. The song you just heard was We Shall Not we Shall Overcome by the Freedom Singers, sung at the March on Washington for Freedom and Jobs in 1963. 
We're honored to have as our guests tonight Patricia Jones-Macklin and Michael Bell. Both are highly respected union leaders who have a legacy of accomplishments during their many years of service to their unions and their communities. Pat is currently the president of the retiree chapter of the AFT Local 691 and past president of the local chapter of the A. Philip Randolph Institute. Michael is the current president of that chapter. Prior to retiring, Pat was a national representative for the American Federation of Teachers, and Michael was recording secretary and field representative of Construction and General Laborers Local 264. Tonight, we'll talk to Pat and Michael about the leaders who dedicated themselves to both the, la to both the labor and civil rights movements. Pat and Michael, we want to welcome you to the Heartland Labor Forum. Thank, thank you, you. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate being here. Uh, Michael, A. Philip Randolph, he was a visionary leader in both labor and the civil rights movement. And in 1979, the Washington Post article about his death at the age of 90, J.Y. Smith said, at the time when American society was almost entirely segregated, A. Philip Randolph was one of the first to use economic power to better the lot of blacks. Would you talk to us about A. Phillips Randolph's successful organization of the first African-American labor union to be granted a charter by the American Federation of Labor? Yes, Tom. Um, a. Philip Randolph was a very powerful man back in the day. Um, it was not an easy job getting them organized. Uh, I believe it was back in 1925 that he was asked to organize the sleeping porters but it took him 12 years, 12 long years. He was up against a the Pullman, Pullman Company, which was a very, very powerful private company back in the day. So he didn't know how he was gonna do it. But what I found out very interesting, before that, he had done some other work that I was not really familiar with until recently. Uh, he worked as a waiter on a, on a steam line, and mm. he had an opportunity to try to organize those people back then. Uh, also, um, he participated in the shipyard workers back in Virginia and tried to organize the elevator workers also in New York City in 1917. So back in the 20s, uh, Randolph was very inspired present throughout the 20th century. He built bridges between whites and black and also against labor and um, civil rights. So he was always trying. He knew he knew there was power if the black workers would become union, uh, when wages, benefits, and everything. And at that time, <clears throat> uh, when once they did become uh, uh, union, as far as even before that, the sleeping porters, that was considered as really a middle-class job. I mean, that was to, to African-Americans, that was almost considered a very prestige job. Wages was good, you traveled, um, you, you wore nice clothing. Uh, even though the job was very tedious and very disrespectful for them to be called sleeping as sleeping porters because sometimes they used to be called George. George. So, I mean, for them to finally come to the prestige and becoming uh, union, that was a great, very great success uh, for A. Philip Randolph. It, it sounds like he was ahead of his time. He was. He was very much so. Very can I much quickly so. add oh, sure. something to of that? Course. You know, I can never let Kansas City's history not be told <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Uh, with the sleeping car uh, porters. Uh, actually, Brother Randolph came to Kansas City many times to organize uh, the sleeping car porters here. He had an alignment with um, 
uh, Chester Franklin of the Kansas City Call. Uh, mm -hmm. He stayed with him. He picked him up from the uh, train station. He would come in in the middle of the night, but he would always be there to make sure he got to his place. He also wrote a lot of articles about why blacks should be unionized. And so uh, they were chartered at Purcell Baptist mm -hmm. Church, mm -hmm. 1936. And so uh, I had to say that because we play a big role in yes. that in Kansas City. Right. Well, and just so our listeners know, the sleeping porters actually worked on the trains, right? Correct. Yeah, Correct. all the trains throughout the whole country. Mm -hmm. Correct. Correct. And was was a Philip Randolph actually uh, a sleeping porter himself, or was he, but he or did he organize the union? As far as I know, he never was. Okay. Uh, one thing that I know he did play a part in that he had a newspaper called The Messenger. Oh yeah. And. Uh -huh. uh, they was able to put that on the train. You know, that was one thing about that, that it traveled from city to city, town to town. And the porters was able to... Kind of communicate, communicate that way. Communicate that way, and that got the oh, message okay. through. Uh, so he played a big part in that, getting the word out. And I want to follow up on what Pat said about um, A. Philip Randolph coming to uh, Kansas City when um, there was a, a play that Bill Claus wrote called 1937, One Hell of a Year. Mm -hmm. And actually hmm. it was it was performed here a couple of times in Kansas City with some um, professional actors but a lot of volunteers. And my late husband and I were actually in the second production back in uh, 2009, right after I had retired as union president. And I believe it was Richard Mabian, who also has been a KKFI volunteer, who played A. Philip Randolph. And we actually had a scene in the play from him coming to the church, uh, you know, for, the, for that experience. Mm -hmm. So it was mm -hmm. kind of cool that we actually highlighted that mm -hmm. in this play. So I just wanted to mention that. And we right. love Brother Claude. Yeah. I know him well. <laughs> and, and, and his wife, Judy, was yes. the one who directed it when, I would, when we were in it in the second time around. So I thought that was kind of pretty cool. So... Uh, Pat, I'll direct this question to you, and then, uh, Michael, if you want to add in, that'll be fine. In 1955, the AFL merged with the Congress of Industrial Organizations to form the AFL-CIO, which mm -hmm. we're familiar with now. And two years later, A. Philip Randolph became a vice president of the organizations. That would have been back in 1957. Mm -hmm. uh, what impact did he have on the AFL-CIO in terms of its racial policies? Well, let me first of all say, say that he earned that seat to mm -hmm. be on the AFL-CIO. Definitely. And it was not an easy mm -hmm. road for him. He, uh, he had to battle. He had to battle completely because there were some people who did not want him mm -hmm. to be there. And so out of his fight for uh, racial policies and things uh, to change, that's how he uh, organized the A. Philip Randolph Institutes around the country because he felt like African-American voices, union workers' voices needed to be heard. And so he couldn't do everything with the AFL-CIO because, I, like I said, it was a hard mm -hmm. battle for him mm -hmm. to be there. Mm -hmm. And so he formed the institutes. They still exist this day. And he organized us based primarily on voter education, um, well, voter registration first, voter education, and then voter participation. But that call has, um, it, you know, it has really uh, changed in a way. We still do that, but there, there are bigger causes out there that uh, A. Philip Randolph Institute gets involved in mm -hmm. because of Mr. Randolph. Mm -hmm. uh, 
Pat, when he, from going from 1920s to the 1950s, during that was Jim Crow time, did he have trouble registering voters, uh, African-American voters in the South, or did, did the A. Philip Randolph, the Institute, and what he had implemented, did that make it easier to register voters in the well, South? Well, the Institute did not come into effect <clears throat> until 1968, so he was not uh, doing a lot of voter registration himself. I have not read where he did a lot of voter registration. He was solely involved in trying to uplift the workers. Mm -hmm. So I don't know his participation in that, but once the A. Philip Randolph Institutes were organized, and like I said, that was in the 1968, uh, things began to change and take off. Was he actually the first black, though, that was put on the AFL-CIO? He was the first African-American put put on the the AFL-CIO, and like I said, he earned it. Yes. Because he brought in the first black union that was recognized by the AFL-CIO. Right. Right. Uh, You're listening to the Heartland Labor Forum, and our guests tonight are Patricia Jones-Macklin and Michael Bell. Pat, most of us are familiar with the March on Washington in 1963 and Dr. Martin Luther King's famous I Have a Dream speech. However, many may not know that the organizers of the march were actually A. Philip Randolph and his assistant, Bayard Rustin. The full name of the march was March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom. So back in 1963, what was the significance of connecting jobs, a labor issue, and freedom, a civil rights issue? Well... It was organized to illuminate the political uh, and social challenges that were confronting African Americans. And one of the things that Mr. Randolph brought forth, there were a lot of industry jobs Mm -hmm. and African Americans couldn't get them. And so he just thought that, okay, we need to do something about civil rights. You know, we could not go to water fountains. A lot of places couldn't eat in restaurants. And then they kind of pulled it together because of the fact that it was all uh, discrimination. Mm -hmm. And so one thing about the march that I always like to point out, uh, it was highlighted, as you said, for jobs and freedom and, uh, you know, our civil rights. And but the interesting thing about it is that women that were involved in the uh, march on Washington, they were excluded from speaking. They would not Hmm. allow for a woman to speak. Dorothy Height was involved in that, and I can't think of the other woman, but there were two women that were involved in the march on Washington, but, you know, they were not allowed to speak. And I I just say that because it's a true statement. Mm They weren't, but it was a job for equality, and you know, it was a march for equality and all of that. But women, y'all can't speak. So, uh, but it was designed to, like I said, to uh, just show that uh, discrimination on the job, discrimination in your everyday life, you know, things had to change from mm-hmm. there. Well, I think it's interesting what you say. At that point in time, probably all women were discriminated against. Of course. You know, it was still a period when we certainly didn't have the rights that we have today. I always found that interesting, <laughs> <Yeah>. though. <laughs> uh, this is for both of you. How does the legacy of A. Philip Randolph live in today's labor movement? Let's start with Michael. 
I think he lives uh, in a way of um, still being out front. Uh, the voter registration, as Pat mentioned, uh, we are really heavy in that. Um, trying to um, come together with the labor community and the African American community. I think that's a, because there was such a stigma that they got it all wrong, the African American community, how they looked upon unions. So, with me and Pat, especially Pat, where she was working with the AFL CIO, they, she really tries to bring the two together again. And that was one of A. Fuller Randolph's strong point because he felt that there were so many, so, so many opportunities if the African-American community would come to know and to break and to uh, merge with the uh, labor union. So I think that's something that we have, have continued to do. Uh, that's so important. Um, and every chance that we get, we try to bring the two together. And let, let me say this about Mr. Randolph's legacy. His legacy lives because we try to keep it alive. Mm -hmm. Because I'm, I'm just saying, we try to make sure that uh, we do the things that Mr. Randolph outlined uh, for us in organizing. But we have to keep it alive because it would die just like anything else if there were not workers who uh, had their chapters and we refuse to let our chapter die. Uh, you know, other people come with other organizations, but we're the oldest uh, organization in the civil in the uh, labor movement, the oldest civil rights organization mm -hmm. uh, in the labor movement. And so, you know, it is up to us to keep it alive because a lot of people don't even know what the A. Philip Randolph Institutes are. Some of them have heard of A. Philip Randolph. Some of them have not. So, you know, we're the ones uh, who have to keep working. Uh, try to get younger people involved because his legacy must go on. It was too important. Mm -hmm. So with the 24, 2024 election coming up, A. Philip Randolph doesn't endorse candidates, right? As, as an institute, you all don't endorse Just candidates. Just the issues. Just the issues. Mm -hmm. and, but you do do a, a lot of work in, ta in terms of voter registration and uh, getting people out to vote, right? right. Talk, talk some about that. And we have done candidate forms, too. Okay. We, we have supported that uh, along with us and other uh, fraternities, black fraternities. We have put on candidate forms to bring uh, issues to the community. So we, if it wasn't for that, us doing that, I don't think a lot of those candidates or the community would have wouldn't been able to hear a lot of those candidates' mm -hmm. issues out front and to question them about their issues. Sort of, sort of educate them so they yes. can figure out who to vote for. That's yeah. what we're all okay. about, education. And we do, we do voter registration, but what we've done the last few years is try to have a coalition with other organizations and not everybody out there doing their own thing. And so that's been pretty successful because we work with uh, the Greek, Black Greeks, the Divine Nine, the NAACP, uh, other organizations in the community. So that's kind of helped us to broaden our base because it's just not us out there. And you, uh, one time you talked about registering people at bus stops, right? We did that back in the day. We did yeah. it. I thought that was very interesting. We stood outside the bus stops and as soon as people got off the bus, we registered them. Very interesting. I think it's a good idea. <laughs> I mean, you have to get them where you can, even though election board has rules about things, but yeah, that bus stop thing, and we could still do that. 
that was that was a good thing. The only thing we didn't realize it was in front of a bail bondsman place, and we couldn't figure out why we were getting all these people. <laughs> and Pat, you might want to talk about the election protection that we're involved with. Oh, that's right. Well, the election protection program. Uh, uh, I just happened to be uh, the person who coordinates it with uh, Anita Russell. Anita Russell's within NAACP. I am representing A. Philip Randolph when we do that. Mm -hmm. We've done it for 15 years, and it's very hard to believe that I've been doing that work. But what we tried to do is to, well, the whole goal is to make sure people know their rights mm -hmm. when they go in to vote. And it's basically within uh, the African-American community. We have branched out to the Hispanic community. Uh, we have our information printed in Spanish now. And so, but you want to be at the places where people, they get turned away, they don't have any idea, you know, why. But we say to them as they're walking into the polls, uh, all of the volunteers, let them know we're with election protection. Here are your rights. If you have any problem, come see me or call the number on the card. And so we have been pretty successful. Uh, we get a lot of volunteers from the League of Women Voters. Uh, and then we started, I got tired of trying to get volunteers, and so we started doing Adopt-A-Poll. And that has gone pretty well because we allow organizations, nonpartisan organizations and churches, to adopt a poll. And that's their poll, and they work it all day, and they pass out the information. They do whatever they need to do there. But that works better because uh, that organization has control of that mm -hmm. poll and they do all of the recruiting. Mm -hmm. I don't have to do that. Okay. So it's been pretty good when, with okay. us doing that. Takes the strain off and I, I think we're going to take a little break, and we'll be back with uh, Pat and Michael in just a few moments. Puzzled by the news? Wanting to learn more? Understanding Israel-Palestine airs every Friday at 9.30 a.m. Locally produced but focused on national and international events, the hosts of UIP interview scholars, journalists, activists, and others about the ongoing conflict in Israel-Palestine. Once again, that's Understanding Israel-Palestine every Friday morning at 9.30 a.m. on KKFI. KKFI has a fun drive coming up soon, and we're always looking for members of our community to come down to the station and be on the air as a pitch partner during our fun drives. Help share the good word about community radio. Interested folks can go online to kkfi.org volunteer to apply. If you can't give your money, you can always give your voice. Alabama's got me so upset Tennessee made me lose my rest And everybody knows about Mississippi gone down Alabama's got me so upset Tennessee made me lose my rest Everybody knows about Mississippi gone down Can't you see it? I know you can feel it Can't stand the pressure much longer. Somebody say a prayer. 
Alabama's got me so upset. Welcome back to the second half of the Heartland Labor Forum. I'm Judy Morgan, and my co-host tonight is Tom Gepkin, and we're talking to Pat Jones-Macklin and Michael Bell about contributions made by individuals to both the labor and the uh, civil rights movement. Uh, Michael, the current president of A. Philip Randolph Institute at the national level is a black woman, Clayola Brown. Oh, I'm sorry. This is for Pat. Uh, she was elected to that position in 2004. Pat, will you tell us about Ms. Brown? Well, thank you. Yes, I will. I've personally known Clayola, oh my God, for over <laughs> 35 years. Uh, and uh, she originally came out of uh, the I think it was the International Garment Workers Union, and she came out of that, and then they merged to be Unite, and so she did work uh, as a rep for them, but she was also very much involved in civil rights, very much involved in A. Philip Randolph, uh, very much involved in many organizations. Uh, she sat on the uh, executive committee, and she may still be on there, of the AFL-CIO, and also, she um, most recently uh, became the civil rights director of the AFL-CIO. Uh, at first, she was working, uh, I think, in the, the organizing uh, department, but then they made her the director of the civil rights department. And not sure if Clayola is still holding that job, but I think she is. Uh, the A. Philip Randolph office is housed in the AFL-CIO building. And so she she belongs to many community organizations. She's well known all over these United States. And I remember uh, very well known in the NAACP. I remember one night I was watching the NAACP awards that they give, and there's Clayola. Uh, she comes out and she speaks. And that's how well-rounded and well-known she is. And as you said, she's been our leader uh, since Norm Hill, who was an outstanding leader uh, since he left, but he's still President Emeritus. And so anytime we have our national convention, we're going to always have Norm there, and he's going to always have a word for us of <laughs> encouragement, and he's always going to remind us of why we are there. Uh, I did not know A. Philip Randolph, but I had seen Byron Rustin a couple of times, and so I was fortunate enough to mm. at least see him in my times with A. Philip Randolph. I'm, I joined A. A. Philip Randolph almost, man, 40 years ago, so it's been a long time. <laughs> Weren't you, uh, didn't you work in Jeff City with A. Philip Randolph? What, I, what happened with that, I, um, I was working for the uh, Kansas City Federation of Teachers, and a. Philip Randolph was doing these grants to uh, elevate black workers or people who they thought would be good in leadership. I was a little ahead of my time because I was already in a job that was a representative job, and other people were working to get there, but I already had that. So when I took the job there, I really took a lateral move, but I took it for many reasons, and so a. Philip Randolph Institute paid part of my salary, and so did uh, the Missouri AFL-CIO. And uh, I was hired under Duke McVeigh, and uh, that was probably one of the most interesting jobs I've had working in Jeff City. I won't even go into the details. 
Hmm. Well, Michael, my good friend Floyd Bell is the president of A. Philip Randolph in St. Louis. Yes. And Michael Bell is the president of A. Philip Randolph in Kansas City. What a coincidence. Uh, how would someone interested in joining a philip randolph what would they need to do what's involved in that and do you, um, who do you take into the organization we take everyone in okay. uh, you don't have to have any union affiliation but most most of our members do have some type of union background uh retirees um we meet the first saturday of each month um at the local 663's union hall on 79th and prospect um, at 9 o'clock. The address is 7820 Prospect, and we meet the first Saturday of each month at 9 o'clock. Um, there we have a meeting uh, that's downstairs at the Union Hall there, and we conduct business um, as usual. Um, so anyone can join. Uh, we have dues, so we have a yearly due of $62 a month. Uh, you can pay that, and uh, I'm sorry, it's a month, a year. I'm sorry, a okay, year. $62 That's a year. For a year. Yeah, a month yes. would be much. Yeah, yeah, we can't afford that. I'm sorry. It's a year. Uh, so um, so that's all they, we just want someone to, uh, we're looking for young people because the organization is really into young people. So I'm really trying to reach out to young people. Uh, Clayola Brown, the president of the A. Philip Randolph, is really into that, and, and they, they do that movement. Each year we have a conference. And during this conference, uh, they really uh, encourage young people to come. They will pay, and I think it's 16 and over, they'll pay for airfare for whatever city, yeah. whatever place you live in. They'll pay for the room and board, and they'll pay for your meals, and they'll send you back uh, to your destination, your home. So that, they really are involved in that, in young people. So they really, and we are really trying to reach out to young people because we are mostly of the older nature uh, 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 people so it sounds like they have the eye on the future yes 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 they do because those young people are uh, educated on a Philip Randolph they do uh, outreach in the community on yeah. some labor issue and you know they are just learning about how labor and the community connects and mm -hmm. so they do a very good job in in uh, you know treating them uh, Treating them to the trip, but <laughs> actually making sure that they fulfill what they're there for. And I'm sorry, I neglected to mention the song that was played at halftime. It was Mississippi Goddamn by Nina Simone. Pat, um, from the 1930s to the 1960s, Walter Ruther, Ruther not only was an outstanding labor leader of the United Auto Workers, but he also made significant contributions to the civil rights movement. Upon his death, I read this quote from Coretta Scott King, and she utilized Ruther with these words, Walter Ruther was to black people the most widely known and respected white labor leader in the nation. He had the courage to be with the minority when it was right, and unfortunately, he and his wife were both killed in a plane crash, mm -hmm. I believe, in the mm -hmm. 70, mm -hmm. early 70s. Talk about Walter Ruther's impact on civil rights in our country. And while I am too young to have known Walter <laughs> Ruther, but he, um, he was very impactful on the civil rights movement. Uh, I just remember uh, the stories of uh, the, uh, the boycott, the bus boycott. They talked about that, and they talk about how Walter Ruther funded, you know, getting the rides for the workers, and hmm. when they couldn't, catch the buses you know he put money into that 
He also, uh, when Martin Luther King was jailed in Birmingham and other protesters, it was $160,000 to get him out of jail. No civil rights organization had that kind of money. Uh, Martin Luther King's bail was 60000 and then the rest of the workers, uh, they made up the 100000 and Walter Ruther was the one wow. who came through and paid that bond and got people out of jail. He also, he used to bug Lyndon Johnson all the time about civil rights. He was instrumental in the Voting Rights Act. He uh, he was just a, a civil rights kind of person, and George Meany used to get mad at him because he was out there. He felt that civil rights and the job that it all went together and you had to mm -hmm. at least have your workers uh, respected and your black workers and so he really went out of his way way out of his way to do things to help the civil rights movement uh, he was assassinated attempt, attempts were made on him twice mm. he survived and he went right back out there, and he did the work that needed to be done. And he funded, like I said, he funded a lot of civil rights events, a lot of uh, bonds to get people out of jail. We talked about that. You know, he just did a lot. And unfortunately, as Judy said, he and his wife, his wife was a teacher. Uh, they ended up perishing in a plane crash. But the interesting thing, once they did investigation, there were several things wrong with that plane, mm -hmm. and they always, and they still wonder if, in fact, that was another assassination mm -hmm. attempt because they didn't want to see him out there. And I tell UAW people all the time, if y'all don't know his story, you need to read it mm -hmm. because he was an amazing president, and he was amazing when it came to the civil rights movement and doing what should be done and should be done today mm -hmm. and i'll repeat that should be done today but i don't know any walter ruthers out there right now has does anybody know why he was so receptive to civil rights that was kind of unusual for labor white labor leaders it at that was but they talked about uh where he came from some and i can't remember it all i think it was some little country town and he worked very hard uh at these jobs, he actually worked in the auto plant, he and his brother. And his brother later became the political director for the AFL, for the uh, UAW. But they had a pretty rough upbringing. And, you know, what he's seen in the plants may have had a lot to do with that, but he was just one of those people. He didn't have an easy life. And then when he got to the point where he at least had something, he went back to pull up other people and you know that was an oddity but I think sometimes when you've struggled mm -hmm. and you've seen all this stuff and he thought the auto workers were just treated the black ones it was deplorable for them in, in the uh, plants because once again uh, the jobs weren't equal so you're going to have all the African Americans doing very low level jobs and not getting paid well for the jobs they did so he saw that in the auto industry and then when he came out he just continued his work did he get a lot of pushback from his uh, union members for for his stances on on this i think not as much as the afl-cio because he also was a, a 
if I remember, a vice president. But I do know that he and uh, George Meany never could understand why he was out doing the things that he was doing, and they would always be uh, at each other about that. Hmm. All right, we're going to kind of shift gears a little bit. Um, this is for Michael. Uh, we recognize Martin Luther King for his tremendous impact on civil rights and the civil rights movement. But he also understood the need for workers to band together through their unions. Uh, will you tell us what Dr. King was doing in Memphis on the night before his assassination? Uh, Dr. King was there as part of the Poor People Campaign. Um, he was there fighting for better wages, uh, workplace safety uh, on the job and at schools. Uh, for the unprivileged. That's why he was there. And he was also there to visit in Memphis for, oh, I think, of about 1,300 or so sanitation workers. That's what it was really all about. It came to be at the end. He was fighting for their better wages and better living conditions. And then, unfortunately, what happened the following day. And their working conditions were really bad. Really and, bad. And uh, some sanitation workers, they were they were killed on the job yes they were yes they were because of faulty equipment yes they were yes they were and they were members of AFSCME that was their union so it it the labor movement and the civil rights movement it's all kind of going coming together yes yes, and it all started with a Philip Randall yes 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 Uh, I'd like to talk like for you to talk for a minute about Bayard Rustin uh, he was committed to both the labor and the civil rights movement from the 30s to the 80s. However, as a gay black man, he was often pushed behind the scenes, and he isn't always remembered the way that he deserves. How do you view Bayard Rustin's contributions to labor and to civil rights? I really don't know personally about him. Uh, there was just a movie came out, I think, this past month about that, and I wish I had got a chance to see it, so I think I could still see it maybe on one of the other Netflix or something. But my understanding was that I don't think that his um, his uh, being gay really affected what he did. Uh, Mr. Rustin was a very, very, very technician in organizing and putting things together. That's really what made Afla Randolph move the way he did. Because he was he was actually leader of yes, Philip Randolph, yes, he right? Was. After yes. A. Philip Randolph, right, right, right. And because of his technician and his way of thinking and organizing, even the March on Washington, mm-hmm. that was able. That's why they were able to move the way that they did and get things accomplished the way that they did. I really don't think that his. Um, what I was word I wanted his him being gay affected the way that he did things. I really don't think that he, I mean, it's different back then than it is now. Back then it was mostly closet. I mean, you didn't really hear about it. I remember even back then I knew some people, a good friend of mine, his dad was was gay. And it wasn't real, we joked about it, but outside that you would never would have known. So I think, I don't think that really affected him um, in, in doing what he did. And he was a very, very, Powerful. I mean, the way he thought and the way he done things, it was exactly that's the word. I mean, he got it done. So, 
I think he did pretty good. Uh, it, interestingly, he received awards from both Ronald Reagan and Barack right. Obama. Yes, he did. He, yes, he did. Obama was posthumously. Yeah, he, Byron Rustin and A. Philip Randolph were powerhouses. And yes. the problem was uh, many of the civil rights movement leaders would not let Byron Rustin come out front because they have that phobia about being gay. So the things that he could have done, he did them, but he didn't always get credit because they just did not want to highlight or let a gay man speak or be recognized. But he kept going, and I did meet him a couple of times in my, you know, in my life, and I was so happy. Uh, the last time I saw him, it etches in my mind, we were in Miami, Florida, and he, uh, he was walking with Alvin Ailey. They had both oh, really? received Alvin an award. Ailey. They were together, and I spoke to Alvin Ailey, and then I turned around, and they were walking away, and I thought, this picture, wow. this will be a picture forever, and Brian Rustin did a little little click with his heels, and they were gone, <laughs> but then they, they died later, but he was a magnificent man, a well-spoken man, but a man who never got to what he needed. I'm glad to see people bringing him up to what he needs to be now because he, you know, he did not get the recognition I don't think he deserved for all the work he did in the movement. So I want to get two questions in. We just got a couple of minutes left, I think. Pat, real quick, talk about Lillian McKittrick, just a little bit about her. Well, it's hard to talk a little bit about <laughs> Lillian McKittrick, but Lillian McKittrick, she was a powerhouse in our our city. Uh, she was the first black woman elected to the uh, Greater Kansas City Labor Council Executive Board. Uh, she was known as the godmother. That's what Ed Lewis named her, the godmother. And she really thought, and she really was, that she was here to direct us in the labor movement, especially <laughs> the black women, young black women. I mean, she used to stay on me about things and how we should do things and I would listen, but I also had a mind of my own. So we kind of went back and forth. And Lillian was a wonderful leader. She was part of A. Philip Randolph for many, many years, and she was well-respected in this community and in the labor community. Well, that about wraps it up. Uh, thank you for this very interesting conversation with two of the best people I know, uh, Pat Jones-Macklin and Michael Bell. And Judy, thanks for coming on the show. We appreciate it and thank educating you. Thank our you. audience. And thank you all for having us. Thank, thank you. you. Good evening and welcome to Remember Our Struggle. This is Ariana Eckel. In January of 1894, unemployment was rampant. Millions all over the country were out of work, and a downturn in the price of silver resulted in an added glut of out-of-work miners. The town of Cripple Creek, Colorado was experiencing a boom after gold had been discovered, and 150 new mines were employing many miners. These miners saw a need for collective organization and formed the Free Coinage Union. Soon thereafter, the mine owners saw that the huge unemployment rate gave them the upper hand. They declared that they would be extending the eight-hour workday to ten hours without raising wages to match. When the union rejected the offer, offer, quote-unquote, the owners offered an alternative. The workers could keep their eight-hour day, but their pay rate would go from $3 a day to $2.50. The Free Coinage Union went on strike and joined the Western Federation of Miners as Local 19. 
Miners set up roving picket lines and closed most of the mines. A few owners immediately backed off, and the miners who then returned to work showed what solidarity was all about. They voluntarily assessed themselves 10% of their wages and used it to set up soup kitchens for the remaining strikers and their families. The owners attempted to bring in scabs, and after a serious effort was made to organize them as brothers, the union instead drove them out of town. At this point, there had already been many labor battles in the West, but this one differed in several ways. The mine owners failed to get the military or police force they demanded to suppress the strikers. The populist governor of Colorado, David Waite, was no help to the bosses. Instead, he made history by being the only governor before or since to dispatch troops to support striking workers. The mine owners did have County Sheriff Frank Bowers under their thumb, but when he sent a team of six deputies to defend a mine, they were captured by the local marshal's special police who were on the side of the strikers. The deputies were then charged by a local judge with carrying concealed weapons and disturbing the peace and released. The judge himself was a member of the WFM. In retaliation, the sheriff arrested the local union president and other leaders, but they were all found not guilty of the charges. The mine owners were furious. They secretly organized and paid for a small army to protect strikebreakers and put Sheriff Bowers in charge. When the first group of deputized gunmen under Bowers' control arrived by train, they were greeted by a dynamite explosion at a nearby mine. As debris rained down on their heads, they chose the better part of valor and climbed back onto their train and backed away. A small war was beginning with shootings and dynamite explosions on both sides. The mine owners succeeded in hiring their personal army. Then, Governor Waite intervened as a benevolent neutral. It was at this point that he sent the state militia to calm things down. The strikers had set up a camp on the top of nearby Bull Hill, and they laid down their arms and allowed the militia to join them. Frustrated, the mercenary army turned their rage onto the town of Cripple Creek itself. They arrested and imprisoned hundreds of citizens without cause. Many inhabitants of the town were seized on the street or pulled from their homes, then clubbed, kicked, or beaten. The deputies formed a gauntlet and forced townspeople to march through it, spitting, slapping, and kicking them. The militia then moved into the town, and General Brooks began detaining the deputies. By nightfall, Brooks had seized the town and corralled all of Bower's men. The governor had had enough. He sat down with labor and management and helped renegotiate the return to the eight-hour day and a three-dollar daily wage. As labor historian Sidney Lenz writes, the outcome was a stunning victory for the Western Federation of Miners. Thank you to the AFL-CIO website. Thank you for listening and have a great evening. Hey, this is Carmen Rodriguez from El Cafecito del Dia. At LACLA, we are proud to be part of the Labor Radio Podcast Network with more than 200 labor radio shows and podcasts from across the country and around the world. The Labor Radio Podcast Network, where working people speaks. Find us at laborradionetwork.org. <clears throat> and now for the Heartland Labor Forms uh, calendar. You can find our calendar on our Facebook page if you miss some of the links we're going to talk about. The 40 Club meets Tuesday, February 13th at 11.30 a.m. at the Sheet Metal Workers Hall, 2902 Blue Ridge Cutoff in KCMO. <clears throat> Wyandotte County, third Saturday Democratic Breakfast is Saturday, February 17th, 8.15 for breakfast, 9 o'clock for speaker. This is at Las Islas Sports Bar at 4929 State Avenue in Kansas City, Kansas. And the speakers are Jeff Pittman, and the chairperson of the Kansas Democratic Party. Heartland Alliance for Progress is hosting an in-person and Zoom, this is a hybrid meeting, 
where volunteers can learn what to do to gather signatures to get uh, overturning Missouri's abortion ban on the ballot. This is Tuesday, February 20th, 530 to 7 on Zoom and at a location to be announced. For more information, send an email to starwall, S-T-A-R-W-A-L, at aol.com. Labor Note, Steward Workshop, Dealing with Difficult Supervisors. Oh, boy, everybody needs to know how to do that. Wednesday, February 21st, 6 to 7.30 p.m. on Zoom. To register, go to labornotes.org events and look for this workshop. The Women's Bureau and OSHA are jointly hosting an upcoming webinar on safety at work addressing gender-based violence and harassment in the service industry. No shortage of that, unfortunately. Thursday, February 22nd, 2 to 3.30 p.m. This is also online, and for information, go to DOL, that's for the Department of Labor, dol.gov slash agencies slash WB, which stands for Women's Bureau, slash events, or just go to the Heartland Labor Forum Facebook page and you will see this link. And finally, save the date. The Labor Notes Conference is accepting registrations. It will be April 19th to 21st, 2024 in Chicago near the O'Hare Airport. You can go to labornotes.org slash events slash 2023 and that's it for tonight's show next week we're going to be talking about union busting and resistance in honduras and hamilton nolan has a new book called the hammer power inequality and the struggle for the soul of labor thanks to tonight's engineer stephen hill the heartland labor forum is a member of the labor radio podcast network oh you already heard about that just go to labor radio podcastnetwork.org and stay tuned for Shots in the Night Radio Theater. listening to the Heartland Labor Forum, a show by and about workers, our workplaces, and our labor movement. We are radio that talks back to the boss, and you can talk back to us too. Send us your feedback, your workplace stories, news, and ideas for shows to Heartland Labor Forum, KKFI, at gmail.com. Our website, where we archive shows and post our upcoming ones, is heartlandlaborforum.org. The views expressed on this show are ours and not necessarily those of KKFI or any of the unions involved. Tune in every Thursday evening at 6 or to our rebroadcast Friday mornings at 5 right here, 90.1 FM. We still got our pride, cause we are the working class and place to be He said if I were Frank Sinatra I'd pull strings And through political bull You'd be on top of the glorified garbage pile With all of their plastic smiles You'd be with all the self-appointed kings and queens With all their power and wealth and the material things that symbolize
Struggle